This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 8th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. In his new book, Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse, author Tim Carney takes a look at some of America's contemporary challenges and comes away with a case for decentralization of state authority and a strong focus on the lesser appreciated benefits of the institutions of family, faith, and community. We spoke this week. What did the 2016 election reveal? I mean, what did it what did it tell us in a fundamental way that we may have thought was there, but not really a serious issue? And what did how did the 2016 election refocus a lot of priorities in America? The main thing that it drove home it drew it brought everybody's attention to the struggles of the white working class in a lot of Middle America. That this was. In 2012, if you remember the post-election analysis, some of the sharper ones found it, the, they, what they called the missing white vote, people who didn't turn up and vote, who kind of were thought to be either, you know, were old Democrats or should be Republicans because they're conservatives, sometimes got lumped into the religious right. So that was the most important thing I saw was that this the rural white Republican vote wasn't a religious right vote a lot. It was often a populist vote expressing a real uh, frustration, a real fear, and a real anxiety, and that that was deep, and that the alliance with conservatism, to the degree it existed, was uh, was pretty thin. These weren't people who were reading our white papers from Cato and AEI. These weren't Paul Ryan aficionados. These were people who saw that America was going in the wrong direction as they saw it and wanted it to be turned around. And Donald Trump was a guy who was ready to come in and burn down what was standing there. And it, it seems like there wasn't a great deal of concern uh, among those voters about precisely what was going to be burned down. There was just a lot of uh, a lot of anger, a lot of uh, frustration and the thought that, well, things will probably get better if we burn down these institutions. Uh, well, that last part might even be a step too far. Okay. So you and I live in, in – I live in a world where there's lots of stuff I don't want to burn down. <laughs> that was one of my columns before the 2016 election. What if we don't want it all burned down? And sometimes it's easy to miss that, that we have so much in our lives. And now I'm getting sort of a little bit personal, but I have – my uh, my Catholic parish, we have a swim club. We have good employers. And some people would chastise this Trump resistant among, oh, you just want to keep your cushy job. Well, it's not just it's not just wanting to keep the job. It's kind of a, a ecosystem in which we live, which has all these institutions. Some of them are politically organized, but most of them are are, are local and they're on the human level and they're how we interact with other people. And so that's what we're saying. Well, we don't want that to go away. And what I found, my analysis in Alienated America is that there wasn't a lot to be burned down. In other words, what the main thing that was missing in the struggling working class parts of middle America were these institutions of civil society. They, these were isolated people living lives without a ton of connection to other people because they didn't have access to the institutions through which humans usually get that connection, get that sense of purpose, get that mini safety net of, of their own. So where, how did that separation occur then? So there's lots of causes to why people have 
sort of fallen away from institutions, why institutions of civil society have faded. Robert Putnam wrote about this in Bowling Alone 20 years ago. And um, since then, a lot of the, the causes have been exacerbated. One is technology changes the way we interact. And it's if you've ever been around a, a family gathering with a bunch of teenagers, there's a lot less uh, conversation and a lot more staring at iPhones. But not just that, but also modern uh, just comforts of bigger, better homes. You've got your own coffee maker in your house. All that stuff makes it easier to not interact with other people, mailing, uh, buying everything you have online. Centralization is a big part of this too. Centralization both of government power and of sort of media attention that as power moves away from the local individual community level towards the state and federal level, then people are less involved on the local individual and community level. And as people more and more focus all their attention on either Donald Trump or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they are less focused on the uh, what's going on around them and they're less involved in their community. And I think that story is the story of the 2016 election, is the story of people getting disconnected from the institutions of civil society. Uh, if you if you measured, if you were to measure applause or measure, you know, whoops from the crowd during the 2016 election for uh, Donald Trump, uh, there were several that, that should have been surprising, or I should say not should have been surprising. There were several that were pretty surprising to me. For example, Dodd-Frank was, <laughs> uh, was a major applause line for Donald Trump whenever he said, we got to get rid of Dodd-Frank. And there are le perfectly legitimate reasons for that, that there are uh, policies that are built into Dodd-Frank that helped dry up some uh, community exactly. uh, lending that that otherwise would have been done. Uh, to what extent can can you or I better connect substantive policy to these uh, people in in particularly in rural areas who otherwise might not care about policy? No, and that's exactly right. They can see that their community bank shut down. That's something they can see, and we can't. Uh, say every bank that was shut down was shut down by Dodd-Frank, but we do know that the the consolidation of banks accelerated after Dodd-Frank that um, and that new banks almost stopped opening up after it. And so people seeing what they have going disappearing is one of the things that people get upset about most. Libertarians often wrestle with this very problem. Oh, if only people weren't so averse to loss and were more open to newness and to change. And th there's a, a good insight there that often we are irrationally attached to what we have. But what I try to argue in this book is that you, a lot of people are rationally attached to what they have, but because they're out there in the countryside, the people who are in positions of power don't put a lot of value on the things that they have out there, on the the little leagues, the, the local banks, the t-ball parades and that sort of thing. So I think that establishing, hey, you know what? You guys need to have more control over your life. You need to be able to um, to shape the world around you there. And so what we're going to do is we're going to devolve some of the power from here in Washington back to you guys, and you guys will be better equipped to build your own community according to your values and what you wish 
that's a message that is uh, functionally libertarian in Washington, and it's both localist, empowering, and even in some ways populist the way that it resonates on the ground. Well, to what extent has uh, the Trump presidency brought some of that about or at least attempted to? I mean, I don't think it's been a priority of Trump. Um, the most important thing to me, I mean, the, the cover of Alienated America is a shuttered church. And the, one of the most important things is that the a lot of the left has tried to drive the church out of the public square to say, you guys can't be involved in adoption. You guys can't be involved and you, you know, you got to be careful about your own rules on marriage. You can't be involved in, in I mean, May, Michael Bloomberg even shut down a synagogue trying to feed people, uh, homeless people bagels because they weren't disclosing the salt content on it and trying to drive. I mean, the, the bottom, the bottom, yeah, the bottom line for a lot of people is you are, it's perfectly fine if you are religious, as long as uh, you do it quietly and the comfort of your own home with the, sh with the blinds. Or drawn. maybe on Sunday or Saturday morning, it's acceptable. That's got to end. And, and Trump has ended that. So th that sort of thing that he stopped <laughs> the government from doing is uh, is the best part of it. On the centralization of affections and attentions, he's he's exacerbating the problem. He wants to do this big July Fourth festival. I hope nobody watches Donald Trump give a speech and watches a Fourth of July uh, Washington D.C. fireworks on TV. I hope every American is out there in their own neighborhood. Uh, watching that fireworks show. That's sort of the real American dream, but that's not Trump. But on the on the regulatory and legislative level, there have been things that where he has been uh, taking power away, giving up power away from the federal government in some ways. It's certainly not a priority of his. He, he's a guy who likes to have more control over stuff, but just because he has a generally conservative administration, it's been there. But again, he's exacerbated the problem both among his critics and among his supporters of sort of stealing people's affections and social activity and their identity, what they belong to, away from the little platoons and towards like the, the Team Red or Team Blue in Washington. You uh, make note of, in particular, uh, the fact that church attendance predicted uh, lower vote share for Donald in Trump. In the Republican primary. So In the Republican yeah, so, primaries. Okay, so, so fair, fair enough. Uh, but to the extent that churches perform a social function, uh, what is that social function? And does it have to be church in your view? So a big part of, I mean, for the middle class and working class in America, the central institution of civil society in America has always been the church. If you read Bowling Alone, he says at one point, Robert Putnam says 50% of all civic activity comes out of churches. And this is the the core thing. So if you care about people being connected to other people and you don't care merely about the elites, but about the rest of America as well, then church is the number one thing. What it does is um, one way to look at it. If you were to strip away the spiritual things, I'm a Catholic. So I think the Catholic church and Christian church has a very particular role in the shape of the world. But if we strip away the spiritual aspects of it, church is an institution of civil society that brings people together for a joint higher cause that provides a safety net. This is These are the people who are going to bring you your meals when you have a baby or, or lend you a car when your car breaks down, gives you a sense of purpose. These are the people who are going to say, hey, we need you to coach this t-ball team. We need you to grill at this. Uh, we need you to cook at the fish fry. 
and it provides modeling and camaraderie and all of this stuff in a, in a way that only sort of a robust institution with regular uh, meetings at this third place together with uh, rituals and that sort of thing, it it provides all of those gains. And so where those churches have closed down across America, a lot of people in the working class are left without robust institutions of civil society. That's where you see marriage dropping out of wedlock, birth rising, college, uh, high school dropouts uh, increasing. And that was also where you saw the most support for Donald Trump in the GOP primary. You also make mention of uh, getting coffee with those old dudes at McDonald's on Friday yep. mornings, which uh, has a special place in my heart because I, uh, in any any town I'm stopping through or any town I, I have lived in, uh, there's always that group. Yeah. And uh, whether or not we uh, consider it an institution, it really it is. It really is. And something that's reliable doesn't involve a lot of planning. And uh, where everybody knows your name, to borrow a phrase, um, is very important. And that's another thing that's happening less. Um, I think technology does have the ability to facilitate these meetings, but it also has the ability sometimes to make them not happen. So that's one of the things I say about technology in the book is that you the best use of social media technology is as a way to facilitate physical gathering face-to-face -face in person. And that that is an indispensable part of helping people live the good life, uh, whether it's raising families, whether it's just um, accomplishing. I mean, people do better at work when they have more friends that they just get to sit down and talk to, in part because what's serendipitous and what's unplanned is something often we very much need. The uh, almost an analogy of the fatal conceit is that we know what we need in our life. We know what questions to ask and we can just ask people. And the truth is that when you're hanging out with people, <laughs> things come up that you didn't even know was a question you had to ask. And that this is a huge part of serendipitous encounters and strong communities. And that when it's lost, people are just, it's a lot harder to, to live your life and to, and to access the good life. Technology is not cyclical, despite what uh, Dennis Duffy might tell us. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not going anywhere. Teenagers, I fear, will continue and at perhaps an accelerated pace with headsets or uh, chip implants or whatever in the future and engage with technology. Uh, so to the extent that is a problem and these uh, the erosion of these various institutions of, you know, personal contact with people who live near you uh, continues to erode, what, you know, what chance do we have to recover a lot of these sort of soft institutions that uh, you say have been eroded? So the optimist in me says that we humans sort of adapt to the environment in order to get what we need. And what we need are these institutions is human contact on a, on a regular level. And if we're going through something of a shock with I mean, smartphones didn't <laughs> didn't exist, you know, 12 years ago. If we're going and the social media platforms didn't, if we're going through something of a shock right now, the, the optimist in me says we will find a way in a way that I don't have the ability to predict that these things will end up serving good more than undermining it. But again, what 
I suspect is that we'll, we're never going to replace the value of real face to face, regular human contact. And so these devices and apps and programs and technology will have to, will hopefully come to serve those encounters rather than to undermine and displace them. I'm not going to predict exactly how because this is sort of part of what makes me a a conservative and a libertarian is that I think that uh, these things happen in very unpredictable ways because of a million individual decisions uh, made uh, by by people seeking their own self-interest. All right. So that's the uh, individual element of it. But what are some of the policy aims? We talk mostly about policy here. Mm-hmm. What are proper policy aims that would, uh, if not engender that type of connection, would at least get out of the way of preventing it? So first, government should not um, be pushing institutions of civil society out of the public square. That if, I mean, one of the debates right now is about a Christian adoption agency in South Carolina. And what that means is if a mother gives their baby to this agency, they are expecting that it will be a Christian family that adopts them. This violates some of the the, the, the norms of today about non-discrimination and that sort of thing. But some, letting something like that exists in a pluralistic American society, I think, is really very important. And if the state is going to be funding adoption agencies, they're going to be funding this agency, too. We could argue that the um, there's a lot. This also gives a lot of reasons for the state to pull out of things. I look at a lot of these religious liberty fights, and I think if the government wasn't involved in this in the first place, this might not be as much of a fight. There are other things um, that can be done on the local level. Building communities around walking rather than around driving I think would help a lot. That The, the car is a very um, inhuman thing and that it, it separates us from other people. Additional policies, again, I just think mostly setting up a framework to allow the pluralism of all the little platoons in the United States is crucial. Talking about technology – I heard some conservative the other day say we should ban children under 18 from having social media accounts. That's absurd. But we send our kids to schools that basically do that. <laughs> You're not allowed to have a smartphone there. And the the parents of our children's friends all have the same norms and the same rules that you're not allowed to have a social media account. This is a proper role of parents. They can't parents can't do it alone. They need backup from a community, but if government is trying to regulate this, they'll be doing it in a, uh, a counterproductive way often. So the, the biggest thing here is set up your policies in such a way that allows as many diverse little platoons, institutions of civil society to flourish. Tim Carney is author of the new book, Alienated America. We spoke this week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 